0: This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zenrong Yap, and my guest today is James Graham. He's a DPhil candidate in the Department of Theoretical Physics at the University of Oxford. His research is on soft, mat- soft active matter, investigating the behavior of epithelial cells using a two-dimensional phase field model. He's a good friend of mine that I know from fencing. And James is someone who always who's always happy to talk about all things math and science, He even gave an impromptu tutorial on calculus on our train ride ride back from a recent quint. He always brightens up the room everywhere he goes, and I'm certainly happy, very happy he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, James.
1: Thank you for your very kind words, Sam. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that you've invited me on because I I didn't know uh, that you did this, but uh, good to talk with you in any context about science, maths, uh, popular culture, sport, you know.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So, um, how's it been? Have you been fencing during the vac? Uh
1: Not really. Uh, on on the aforementioned uh, quint trip, where I where I gave one of the freshers an impromptu tutorial, I managed to break both of my blades. Uh, so I had to order some new ones in, and uh, that took a week. And then <clears throat> my other sport is cycling, so I, I I gave some more attention to that since I was lagging behind on my. Uh, yearly goal of ten thousand kilometers, um, and that, that's a that's a big number. And if I miss it, I'm gonna have to do it all over again next year. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, so I need to make that.
0: Where are you up to in that ten thousand kilometer walk? Ah.
1: <laughs> As of yesterday, I'm at nine thousand nine hundred and eighty-two. Oh, so, that's so very, close! Very close. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, I've got a week to do it because I'm going back to the states for Christmas on on Monday, and I won't be able to ride there.
0: Is is that because it's like snowing there,
1: or? Oh no, it's cause uh, it's cause the roads are really dangerous.
0: <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that's, that's that's fair. Um, I don't know. In Malaysia, you can't you basically can't cycle anywhere either. I mean, number mm. one is way too hot, and uh, number two, I think I don't think cars are used to having any cyclists around, so
1: i no. will
0: just stress everyone out. Yeah.
1: How hot is it in Malaysia?
0: I think it's like averages 37 degrees maybe it goes higher to four, like over 40 yeah, sometimes that's yeah it's pretty cool. hot uh, <laughs> yeah most of the time it's um every, everywhere is air, condi- air, air conditioned air so when you go to everyone uh, just goes to a mall basically and like hangs out there yeah so yeah um just to jump in um you mentioned your d field to me was on soft matter and phase field models right could you describe yeah. and explain what that's about because i was always I I been really curious about it. I haven't found the time to yeah,
1: ask um, that. So the overarching goal is to understand how cells move. Uh, and computationally speaking, it's easier to look at how cells move in two dimensions rather than three, but people do do research in three dimensions. And um, that's useful for things like tumor invasion, because uh, you, you have a tumor somewhere in, in an organism and it metastasizes and how do the cells, uh, yeah. How, how do they leave the tumor and, and migrate by themselves? Um, now, there are lots of ways that you can model how cells move around in two dimensions. And I, I could rattle off their names, but they, they, they have advantages and disadvantages. Like you can look at where the sense of the cells are. You can look at where the boundaries of the cells are. The phase field model, which I work with, is a nice one. Um, it's, it's been used by a, a number of people over the years. and you know, I think it I think uh, I think it was first put together for this context in about 2012 uh, but it, it we stole it from the condensed matter materials science people because you know, one of the most important uh, aspects of the phase field model is the demixing and in in materials you've got like uh, a mixture of of two salts or something and you, you, know, you change the temperature and you want to see uh, where you get some pure crystal and some other pure crystal, and then you different phases of crystals as uh, as, uh, as your as your system comes to equilibrium when you freeze it. Um, of course, cells aren't crystals, but it's still useful because you can use the free yeah. energy to say, okay, here I'm inside my cell, and elsewhere I'm outside my cell, and and you can. Um, you can change the, you can add more things on so that uh, so that the face field is squishy. It has a, a preferred area, and so on. And you can put a load of these things in in a two-dimensional domain, and you uh, you can say there's some kind of friction on the substrate because you know in vitro cells have these little finger-like protrusions, well, not necessarily finger-like, but they have protrusions that stick them to the substrate and, and tug on the substrate and the internal machinery of the cell moves them along, so you you have that. You have friction between the cells, so um, the cells stick to each other using uh, uh, adherence junctions and they tug on each other, so you you can have some kind of normal force between the cells, but you can have a tangential force too. Cells being alive uh, are active particles, so they they have a certain direction they want to go in, so you you can have a polar, active force in that context. And I, I did that recently for my transfer of status. You can have a pneumatic active force where you've got a dipolar force going on. So you want to create hydrodynamic flows pointing outward in one direction, pointing inward in another direction. And this can align with the shape of the cells, however you like. Um, so that's a, a very broad overview of, of what what such phase field models contain. What's the point of a phase field model? Well, I already said uh, that we care about how cells move around, but in vivo systems are very really complicated. There are all kinds of, uh, well, well, there are a lot too many cells to, to really keep track of. So you can just plate some on a dish and, and see what they do. And there's some really great literature about how cells move in vortices if you've got them in a little circular confinement. So this works even if you've just got two cells. It works if you've got 10 cells. It works if you've got 100 cells. It doesn't work when you've got 1,000 cells because there's a length scale to the tissue and you get little regions of vortices and then you get regions of flow elsewhere and so on. But looking at smaller uh, confinements, which is what I did sort of for the first year of my DPhil, you you do get um, this nice rotational motion. You can recover that uh, for various parameters of the cell-cell adhesion and the self-repulsion that cells sort of inherently have. Um, so for a sec, oh yeah, go ahead, Sam.
0: I was, I was gonna ask, um, all, the, all the parts you mentioned, like the friction and um, like the, it's the movement it wants to like inherently or yeah. um, like uh, undertake because it's a living organism and the polarization. Do you build that all into one equation? Because I remember when I searched up a phase field model, you get like an F, and then you get an integral with lots of lots of energy oh, yeah. terms in it.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so the passive stuff in the phase field model is uh, in, in this goes the same way as basically any other phase field model. Right? even active phase field, you you can, there there are people out there doing solid condensed matter physics who make a phase field model. And then there's some kind of uh, packing that can be like linear packing of 2D elongated things There can be square packings There can be hexagonal packings, depending on the the mass density of your material and how active it is and so on. But yeah, you you want to relax to a, a a minimum of a free energy and the free energy has the karnhilead term which you may know from materials that's the demixing it has an area constraint because uh, unlike in uh, like looking at how melts come to equilibrium and demixes solids um you know cells do have areas yeah. <laughs> there are a certain size and not something else there's uh, there's a free energy that comes from an adhesion which I think is uh, a very nifty little thing. It, it takes a gradient and then it uses that as a proxy for the boundary between two cells. And then there's, uh, then there's an overlap um, free energy. So this is where you kind of enforce the two-dimensionality of the system. So if the cells overlap a little bit, that's no good. That takes you out of two dimensions. So you have a, have a harmonic Actually, no, it's the Quartic, um, the one that I use, uh, free energy that penalizes the overlap between cells. So you've got that. You you take a, a functional derivative of that free energy with respect to your fa- each of your phase fields. That tells you a, a number of quantities that you need to calculate inside the code. And um, the postdoc who originally wrote the code you know, handled all of that. As, fairly straightforward the interesting stuff is where you put on the active forces because you know these are non-equilibrium there is no free energy um you have to have a little bit of physical intuition there and Mm -hmm. i think having put together notes for this podcast uh, physical intuition is key whatever it is you do so it's it's nice in the cells because like you can look at a cell on, on, a, on a glass slide and it moves around and say, okay, the cell is moving around. It's doing a persistent random walker. It's doing a run and tumble motion. These are all things that that cells, bacteria can do. Um, it On a very fine grain level, uh, you have the internal machinery of the cells. So you've got the cytoskeletal system, your microtubules, your actins, your myosins that turn over and and push these finger-like protrusions out if you've got an amoeboid cell or an epithelial cell. You've got flagella um, in the case of E. coli and other bacteria. Mm -hmm. And so you you know it's there, it's physically there, so you feel justified saying, okay, the cell has a certain traction it wants to go in, and if you leave it to its own devices, it, it has some strength here. And then there's a force balance, so the, the sum of the forces uh, on on the cell, active, passive, et cetera, have to equal your friction coefficient times its velocity. Uh, because in in well, you throw out inertia because the cells move very very slowly, uh, and there's uh, the Reynolds number in the system is really low. So it's a, a very <clears throat> viscous kind of thing. So the way that Sorry. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, I was just going to ask. The, the way it moves is because of, um, is 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 because like of interactions, because it's it's like it doesn't actually want to want to move, right? It's it's more of, um, just the the result of it interacting with like ions and stuff like that. And
1: how how does it move? On, no, well, any kind of cell, ha- well, perhaps not neurons. I don't know about neurons. <laughs> But, uh at least not know? in that respect yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh you know bac- bacteria and mesenchymal cells you know for example tumor cells um epithelial cells like skin cells they they definitely do move and uh they they move y- using the internal cytoskeletal machinery they've right. got powered by atp or they've got <coughs> flagella and these little, yeah. little stringy things that they wiggle and they they oh, okay yeah. um uh, so it's it's all internal and it's powered by, well, ultimately ATP, but however they get energy uh, through eating nutrients and and that, that's all on a level that's a little bit too fine grained for the, the phase field model, which is why I said, we feel justified saying the cell wants to go in a certain direction Mm -hmm. with a certain speed. And then, you know, they don't go in that direction forever. So there's some kind of rotational diffusion going on in, in this direction See. as well. Uh so that's part of it. The other question is how, how do you choose that direction? Right? So E. coli, for instance, are a rod shaped bacteria, yeah. and they have a flagellum at the end that is is in line with the, the rod shape. So you, you feel justified in saying, okay, uh, the bacterium itself is pointing a certain direction and it's going to go that direction.
0: Mm.
1: When, you've got, uh, when you've got epithelial cells that are a bit blobbier, uh, definitely not rod-shaped, it's perhaps a little harder to define the direction that the cell is pointing in terms of its shape. Um, do, you, do you still want to, to make the cell go in the, sort of the average direction of its shape? So you want the cell to go according to the velocities of its neighbors, do you want the cells to go according to some other field? you can have chemical fields magnetic fields electric fields and the cells respond to these kinds of things uh, yeah so uh, there's a there's a lot of room there to explore how cells may or may not do things and it it sounds a little bit making stuff up and seeing what sticks uh but it it's well, to an extent it could be. Right? You, you, could, uh, you could mix and match all of these different things and just see what happens. But it, um, it's useful in that, uh, you know, for instance, if cells go to the average of their, their neighbor's velocities, well, in that case, you know, in a small system, when you've just got two cells, they won't move around In they won't go in a circle because if they're going in a circle, the average velocity of the system is zero. And if in a, this kind of velocity alignment thing, they want to both go to zero velocity, well, there goes your rotational motion. And this was the subject of a paper in 2014. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you, you can generate predictions and uh, you, you can see what parameters and what mechanics of the, the force alignment and shape alignment and so on. Generates things that look like what the biologists see when they actually do their experiments. Uh,
0: so I guess <clears throat> further down the line, uh, people would use these models that uh, that you build and previous person built to look at act- to look at actual biological systems, right? And uh, try to understand the mechanisms behind that. Is that what happens?
1: Yeah, uh, on on a coarse grain level, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, so if biologists look at life on a huge number of scales, and we've picked a scale where we resolve each cell. Um, you can go on on a much finer level and that you can uh, you can write down equations for the the myosin cortex and some people do that, or you can go on a much coarse grain more coarse-grained level and you don't even resolve individual cells, you just average over the density and the velocity of a region of cells. So we've picked a nice length scale here where, where the things in the system represent individual cells so that you can look at some kind of mesoscale biological experiment and, and see whether we can make that happen in silico.
0: So what's the, what's the biggest problem that you need to um, sort of fix or tackle before you think it would be able to be adopted more and used more?
1: Uh one of the really big problems is cell division, and I thought I had solved this about a month ago. I was so excited. <laughs> uh, I, no, the, I, I only really did this because one of my group members just said, "Hey, James, what about cell division?" So I thought, "Okay, how am I going? How can I write a cell division algorithm?" And hey, is it, it? In theory, it's pretty easy, right? You you find out where this set you know, your cells divide randomly according to some distribution that that's sort of beside the point for right now but once the cell decides it wants to divide you you take that cell away and you put two daughter cells back and then you just keep and there are some subtleties here like uh, you you know when a when a cell starts dividing it 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 elongates. You you get your centrosomes and the mitotic spindle with all of your chromosomes lined up across the middle, and then they, and then you kind of pinch off at the centre. So you need to you need to have something that is reasonably uh, representative of that, not least because if you just take away a cell and put two daughter cells back, well, as um, there's not enough room for them both, so that's that's not realistic. Um, I thought I had solved that. I got some very nice movies of this happening in my computer, or I should say on the cluster. Um, And then I'm I'm running into memory issues that I I just can't deal with. Um, So I've kind of stepped back from that and I'm looking at pneumatic forces in in my two-dimensional tissue at the moment. And hopefully, I can resolve the cell division problems. See, well,
0: good. Oh, good, good luck with that, James. I think <laughs> if there's anyone, I think you can do it. Um, yeah, I, I do remember with, with any statistical mechanics sort of simulation, you do get quite nice movies <laughs> and videos to look at, right? Yeah, yeah. I, when I did a, a, a ferromagnetism simulation before, just looking at all the domains sort of splitting up, that was quite cool. Oh, yeah,
1: magnets um, <laughs> are really cool.
0: Yeah, so the first time I, I saw oh oh yeah, you can simulate physics on a computer. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um so uh last time when we talked about um what you did on your masters before, it was on um it was on mathematical and theoretical physics, right? Yeah. And you did a you did a presentation on collisionless astrophysical plasmas. So yeah. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Because, um Astrophysical plasmas just sound like so I mean it's just it's like it's like it's a, it's a fluid that's also charged and in space, right? So it sounds yeah. like the craziest thing.
1: Yeah, um well, oh you, you must remember a couple of things when I, when I talk about the things that I did on my master's course. Firstly, my, my undergraduate degree was in applied maths, not physics. So I didn't have much physics, so I was starting from more or less scratch when I came to Oxford to do to do my master's degree. Um, secondly I, I was okay with the maths and not so okay with the physical <laughs> intuition which made uh, yeah uh, which made the plasma instabilities project a bit of a mess. Um, Plasmas are really cool um, I mean a lot of physics is really cool which is why it was so hard to choose uh, a topic for, to do for a defil but um, well so well, well to have a plasma you need to have some kind of charged particles and you get that by um, heating it up or having a really low density fluid so that just a little bit of heat will dissociate them. And on In astrophysical plasmas um, you're looking at one particle per like milliliter or cubic meter or something. You know, they're, they're very sparsely, you know, they, they occupy space very sparsely as compared to like the tokamaks they've got going down at Cullum, uh, uh, but still they're plasmas and they, they follow the rules that the plasmas follow. Uh, the plasma instabilities uh, was interesting, I, I got all the maths right when I when I did my presentation, then the guy who was supervising me said, "Okay, so so physically, what's going on when you've got this this particular instability? It's called a fire hose instability." I was like, "Well, I, I, I don't know, I don't know." Um, but uh, you can look at plasmas from a kind of kinetic standpoint, or you can write down fluid equations for them, and this is magnetohydrodynamics, MHD, and you can. Uh, you can make it collisionless. You can make it collisional. You can make it relativistic. You can make it Galilean. The the relativistic um, MHD is very important in space as compared to, um, like tokamaks, because you know black holes, for instance, have these plasma jets off their poles, uh, and those are very very fast objects. So to understand what's going on, you do need to include relativity in your in your theory of MHD. Um, you know, MHD helps explain things a bit better, and in fact, it explains one of these plasma instabilities a bit better. Because uh, when, when you're talking fluids, you're talking uh, quantities like pressure. Well, you already I already talked about pressure in the kinetic standpoint, but uh, you, you you physically understand what pressure is. Uh, you understand what temperature is, and this is where plasmas can get a bit mind bending because um, you have magnetic field lines, right? And uh, you've got this notion called flux freezing, where if you take a little loop around a magnetic field line and you advect it with the flow, the flux is conserved. So it means that the magnetic field lines are baked into the flow of ions, well, electrons really. Um, And conversely, the electrons move along the field lines. And once you take out the Larmor precession, which occurs on length scales far too small for you actually to care about, um, when you're doing MHD, uh, so you've got that, um, and that means that you have uh, you have pressures and temperatures that are different, parallel to and orthogonal to the field lines, which is kind of wild.
0: So your uh, so your um, so your fluid which is pretty sparse. Um, it's like basically acting like re- it's really crazy because of- um, But it's like, not
1: crazy, it's it's very well organized. Oh, I see.
0: Wait, so, wait, so what, what, how, what exactly happens then?
1: Well, in this particular one that I want to talk about, the fire hose instability, yeah. uh, I, I didn't give it his name. Someone else <laughs> get, way back in like the 50s or 60s gave it this name, but it, ma- it makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you're talking about fluids and pressures because you know, what what goes on in a fire hose you've got a lot of water moving very quickly at high pressure uh, you you've got the skin of the fire hose it's very strong that pr- you know, holds the pressure in and it squirts out the end right uh-huh. and if you don't want the end of the fire hose to go anywhere what what do you need you need to hold on to it very very strongly right and you sort of have to tug on it and you know, hold it very, very tight. And if you let go, it'll just fly everywhere. Mm-hmm. This is what happens in, in this plasma as well. So it, if you've got the, the right regime of oh, pressure, temperature, I've forgotten exactly, um, it's, it's been a while. But the idea is you've got this parallel pressure, you've got the pressure parallel to the, uh, to the magnetic field line. And if you let it go wrong, that parallel pressure goes to zero. Or negative. Anyway, the, the idea is that instead of having a very taut magnetic yeah. field line, because you know, if you've got a magnetic field line, um, it'll literally oscillate like a guitar string.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Right? Because of the
0: movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, no, okay,
1: yeah. no. Because um, you can have a stable perturbation to the magnetic field line. I see, okay. Uh, and the tension in the magnetic field line, just like uh, just like in your one D wave equation, you, uh, you you pluck a guitar string. That's a stable perturbation because uh. it's held in by the by the tension at the bridge and at the um, at the neck, right? Mm-hmm. But if your tension disappears, your guitar string breaks.
0: Then
1: it just and uh, and your line. fire hose breaks, <laughs> and your magnetic field line goes squiggly all over space. So then um, that's your instability. And then there's um, another one called a mirror instability, which is also cool. That's where you've got electrons sort of confined in a, you kind of make a box out of magnetic field lines and the electrons will bounce from side to side and uh, that can go wrong as well. Yeah. Okay. All kinds of interesting things going on. And then uh, have enough instabilities you, you get what's called well i am not an expert on mhd or on astrophysical plasmas but it, it you you have this notion of something called a galactic dynamo uh, and uh, if you have instabilities that that's uh, sort of tangle up your your field lines and if you've got um, flux freezing that conserves the flux through a loop well if you if your loop goes very, very small, the field will get very, very strong, and vice versa. So you, you stretch out all of these field lines, you twist them up, tangle them up in all sorts of directions. You can actually get quite s- strong fields out of fairly weak fields. I
0: see. So oh, um, I think is it is it pulses that um, like are highly that's they're spinning really, really quickly. Right? Yeah. Uh, do, uh, do they do they? I'm I'm sure. Do they cr- create a lot of like um instabilities because of how quickly they're spinning? Oh,
1: I don't know that that sort of takes you into the realm of relativistic okay. MHD and, and plasma kinetics. I don't know. How, what I do know, what I do know, is that if you've got black holes, you have the polar jets and pulsars are like black holes in that they are very dense objects. Are pulsars? Some pulsars might be black holes. And I might be making stuff up. I can have a quick Google. A highly magnetized rotating compact star. So not necessarily a black hole.
0: I see. Okay. Um, well.
1: But you, know, you, can, you can still have the kind of accretion disc going on. Um, and they they definitely do shoot out x-rays and other stuff and so where, where we're getting else? well off my 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 area of expertise here I see
0: um so when you were studying um this sort of module uh was it, how how did it work was it like setting up um these like cases and then study like break try and break <laughs> them basically oh that's right.
1: Well, the, the structure of of the the whole master's course was that you, you go and take a bunch of lectures. And if you wanted to do a, a dissertation, you could do that. And the content of your dissertation would end up being the content of your presentation. If you didn't do a dissertation, like I didn't, you could pick a topic that was on offer. And uh, one of the professors had a topic on plasma instability on offer. And I thought, well, I took the plasmas class in in hillary i could do this um i I also could do it but i just went off to the rank science library and read a few (laughs) books and and uh by by physicists from the 50s to to kind of understand what was going on and and collected the maths in a way that made sense to me and hopefully to the people i was presenting it to uh i gave my talk on that I had to wear the silly clothes yeah. <laughs> that's,
0: that's fantastic yeah and uh, I, I really need to get into the Radcliffe, uh science library I haven't been in there yet so well it's um, been
1: moved hasn't it because the construction of Reuben College
0: oh well, yeah. wait it the, think the so.
1: Harmsworth library these days or something
0: you know what that actually makes sense because uh, I, when I went into the V.S. Harmsworth library I thought it was a I thought it was American History Library, but then I saw like I saw theoretical physics books there as well. Yeah. So that was quite confusing. But I think it makes most much more sense now that you say that. Yeah. Um with with your with your masters, because it was in um, mathematical and theoretical physics. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what the difference between mathematical and theoretical physics is.
1: Oh uh, yeah, so um, it, it is two words, isn't it? Uh, mathematical physics is a lot of making mathematical techniques that can be used in physics. So uh, in, in the world of fluid dynamics, it can be developing, well, one, one example of something that's been developed is, not so, you know, the advective derivative or the material derivative that uh, you, you've got a, you know, the partial time derivative plus oh, the, yeah. the advection of a thing due to flight. Well, that's uh, not the only kind of, sp- special derivative you can write down for fluid problems. You can, you can develop something else. And one of these things is uh, a co-rotational derivative, or you can have can upper and lower convected derivatives. So you, you account for some kind of rotational motion oh, okay. when, you're, when you're advecting your material and you can keep going to, to higher and higher levels of hydrodynamic interactions. Hydrodynamics is difficult because they're long-range interactions, and long-range interactions, well, they're yeah. difficult. <laughs> so uh, it's
0: complex, yeah,
1: yeah. And so, if you've got a co-rotational derivative, uh, convective derivatives, and so on, um, it accounts for the rotation of the fluid in addition to the advection, and that means that you can take a look at some things like Maxwell models and swimmers, squirmers. Uh, 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 other like really viscous uh, non-Newtonian fluids, you can look at uh, how a rod-shaped particle falls in a in a dense medium. Uh, a rod-shaped particle doesn't fall straight down, it'll rotate to, to a kind of special angle and then fall from there, which is kind of cool, and you can't account for all of that stuff if you just have an adfactive derivative. So you want to so the, the work of the, um, the mathematical physicist, I'm sorry, I just said entirely the wrong thing, is to, to develop more techniques to help solve questions like that. And then in theory, um, you don't necessarily need maths, you just need a lot of physical intuition um, and it it helps to have maths. And I, I think a, a great example of the distinction between mathematical and theoretical physics yeah, is that. Well, to, to hammer home the, the aspect, the, the theoretical physics bit, is that um, in the 50s, you had particle accelerators. I mean, you still have particle accelerators, but you had them in the 50s and, and, and you, you had detectors looking at things coming coming from the sky and you, you'd see cosmic rays and they break up into pions and then they decay into muons and all kinds of kaons and other particles, right? So you ended up with this thing called the particle zoo. Yeah, where you've yeah. Got, yeah, the particle zoo where you've got like so many particles going on. They've all got different charges and different spins. And like, what on earth is going on here? And then Murray Gelman was like, what, what if we have these six things called quarks and they come together in various combinations to make the particles in the particle zoo? And that's a very theoretical physics way of looking at things because the, the quark model works really, really well. Right, but there was no amazing mathematical underpinning for that until the seventies, when when um, Wilczek, we'll Pollitzer and Gross came up with um, QCD, which you know is, is how we understand the weak and strong forces today. But, uh, but even without the maths, Murray Gelman was able to kind of see through this whole, um, What well, um, phenomenology of of particles—that's the right word—to um, kind of hypothesize what could be causing it. So I think that's a great example of theoretical physics in action.
0: That's actually, that's actually a really cool way of putting it. <laughs> I'd always been um, trying to figure that out, and one of my teachers um, said, said 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 something about. How the mathematicians sort of come up with the structure, and they look at they look at it just from the structure, right? But then the physicists think about it in terms of the intuition, and I th- the the quark the quark story is actually a pretty, um really good way of putting it because you have you have the whole like, like twenty years in between. Is it twenty years? Because f- the fifties something like that. I
1: think yeah. it was like the mid seventies when they invented QCD, and as a uh... There's a lot of symmetry going on there. There's a a lot of quantum field theory. And these are techniques that you steal from mathematical physics, like how on Earth does a functional integral go when you've got all of space time to worry about? Uh, How how do we formalize interactions and things? I don't think Murray Gellman thought that gluons were a thing. He just thought, here are some quarks, Let's, let's mix them up. Let's hypothesize that they've got some fractional electric charges. Uh, and uh, and and then you got the formalism in the seventies, which has proved extremely fruitful.
0: So, who would you? I mean, which sort of group would you put uh, someone like Einstein in?
1: <sighs> Einstein. Einstein.
0: <laughs> I knew he'd be a difficult one.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's a, he is a difficult one because. Hey, uh, general relativity is so rich, both mathematically and theoretically, um, the, the whole differential geometry that, um, that Riemann came up with is, is an extremely mathematical thing, but it turns out that it does have very useful applications in theoretical physics. Um, I think you could probably say that Einstein was more a, a theoretician than a mathematician because uh, it, it's, it's sort of documented that he would do some maths and then he'd write a letter to one of his mates and say does this maths look look okay to you and then they say okay yeah it looks all right I don't understand any of what it means but like it looks okay yeah. and then uh, yeah he, he came up with thought experiments like the classic uh, equivalence principle are you accelerating upwards or is gravity pulling you down um thought experiment um which is sort of where general relativity begins, um, and and then he did a the very theoretician thing where he hypothesized that the universe is uh, is a static object. So he put the cosmological constant in yeah. that has uh, has proved to be both wrong and also very helpful. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so
0: it seems like we have him like thinking a lot more. Uh, just about like, the thought experiments and like seeing seeing things move around in his head.
1: Yeah, like, um, Einstein was really special in that he he was able to think about all of this really crazy stuff, and then he looked looked for some maths to describe it. Um,
0: yeah. what well, would you say you because from what I, what I'm hearing from you, you sort of started out on the more mathematical physics side. Um, and then I've
1: moved into the more... T- well, t- I started t- in so. sort of complex systems. That, yeah. That's the bulk of what I did my undergrad in. You and did- I wouldn't say I've returned to that, but... Yeah.
0: You did say that you did your... Uh, you know, was it your thesis on computational neuroscience? It well, wasn't a thesis, the-
1: it was a couple of summer projects. Okay. But I can talk about that yeah what was that what was that about yeah um well let's lay down some analogies um uh, some groundwork uh, I, i've already said that in in the world of two-dimensional tissues and, and cells moving around uh th- there are a whole load of models out there right uh, and the phase field model is one that's nice in computational neuroscience there are also a, a, a ton of models um uh, uh, there are so many of them. They they can be very fine grained. They can be very coarse grained, etc. etc. Um, I did two projects on on different ends of that spectrum. The first one was to do with Hebbian learning, where you you've got a matrix that represents the connections between neurons, not necessarily symmetric, and you iterate some learning to to kind of promote some synapses and to demote others, and and the idea is that by building up a connection of synapses, can uh, you've you've encoded a memory? So then, uh, well, it's it's well known that you can encode multiple uh, memories into one network of neurons, and this is something I did for a problem sheet once. Right, I set up a, uh, in in MATLAB a, a, a neural network, and actually that one was cool because uh, you yeah, you encoded something like five memories and then it, you know, it would cycle through them uh, fr- um, with a certain frequency. That was kind of nifty. But um, the point of the project that I did with Hebbian Learning was to, to see if we could encode a, a, a few memories and then see how noise affected what we call the decorrelation. So uh, if, if you give a neural network something that's exactly what it's memorized, and it'll say, okay, here's the thing. And it hasn't actually had to do anything because you've already given it, given it to it. You, you can put some noise on, on the input, right? So you can take the memory and you can give it a little squiggle here and there. And then the neural network will take that and say, okay, this is the thing that I've like memorized. And the question is, if you've put multiple memories in, can you do a linear combination of those memories and, and see what it, says so if it's memorized well uh, the the kind of thing we were we meant to model through this was the olfactory bulb so we talked about things like chocolate and coffee so if it's memorized what the signature of coffee is and it's memorized what the signature of chocolate is it 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 can recover each of those things separately if you mix together coffee and chocolate what's it going to say if you put some noise on top of that it, it might might bias it slightly towards chocolate, or might bias it slightly towards coffee. And I, I, I did the the numerics for that as a PhD student doing, doing the theory, um, and that was kind of interesting. I spent a few months on that one summer. And the second project I did was a much fine finer grained thing. In in computational neuroscience, there's this thing called the Hodgkin-Huxley model, which, which might ring a bell or something. It basically you've got bunch of couple differential equations. And instead of looking at how strong the connections between neurons are, well, you've you've got that. You've got that because it is a neural network. But instead of just looking at that in the context of heavy learning, you've got a a potential, the the voltage inside each neuron, you've got the states of various uh, potassium, sodium, calcium flows, and so on. Um, There's a lot going on. Uh, So you, you could say this is a more realistic model. You, you put together a bunch of these things you couple the neurons together and the point of this project was to see how uh, see how the neurons synchronize with each other so you, you put in a, a certain input at a certain frequency and then do, do they synchronize all together in phase with the input do they synchronize all together out of phase with the input uh, do they synchronize into multiple groups? One of the cool phases that we saw is, um, they would uh, the, the neurons were synchronized into two groups that were out of phase by 2 pi over 5.
0: Why 2 pi over, over
1: 5. I' don't, well, I didn't do the theory that, <laughs> but, but it was cool because uh, you'd uh, you'd have the, the periodic stimulus and then you'd go like bum, and then you'd wait until the next stimulus. That's cool because that, thats like your heartbeat or something. I and mean, it's, it's not your heartbeat because it's neurons, not not cardiac tissue, right? But um, the the cool thing was that you could get all of these different synchronizations uh, out of this network of neurons according to how strong the input was and um, how strong the noise in in the uh, the synapses was as well. And Ultimately, the idea behind that was like, how, how do you get all of the different brainwaves that people have? Right, so, so people who study sleep or, or do stuff with MRIs a lot more would know a lot more about the brainwaves. But you know, they have different frequencies and they, they come about at different times. So obviously the neural network inside your head is capable of doing different behaviours at different frequencies. So this was a sort of analogous to that. And then um, I should say that I was doing all of the really uh, nitty gritty computations for that. And the theory came from one of, a different PhD student this time, um, PhD student, um, who had a Kuramoto model, which you may have seen.
0: Sorry, what's that?
1: The Kuramoto model is a very simple thing. You have an oscillator with a certain phase, and then there's a a bias towards synchronizing with the other oscillators. Um, yeah, you have you have one differential equation per oscillator rather than like six or seven. Uh, I, can,
0: I can see an it's um, Sorry, I, this, I think there's a thunderstorm going on. But uh, oh, I, I can't. Yeah, yeah I, I I'm just not, not so sorry. Yeah, but anyway. Go and
1: KuroMoto models are cool because um, one of the classic problems in synchronization is fireflies. Um, do you have? Do you know fireflies or?
0: uh yeah 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 um, yeah we up. have them in
1: america so it's it's a very uh you, you go out on a summer evening and you see the fireflies flashing and then you go to university and your complex systems professor's like remember fireflies this is what's going on uh, so you, you have an oscillator that represents where in each um because fireflies lighting up and then going dark is is an oscillator right they do it with a certain certain frequency and it turns out they, they do synchronize. So you can set up a Kuramoto model to describe these things. And yeah, no, that's uh,
0: why I remember it, it now as the fireflies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, that's a very simple thing, but it's also cool to see it coming together. And it's cool to see something like that applied to a system of you know, hundred neurons, um, older a hundred neurons doing uh, various other uh, synchronous behaviors. That's cool. So it was
0: like studying. Um, <clears throat> so you you basically set up a system to as an analog for the brain, and then you study like and you're studying what the model would come up with when you That's sort right. of put it under yeah. certain conditions, right? Uh, you know, I've yeah, always so been wondering how co- computational neuroscience works, <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense. it's it's, it's quite similar to just how uh, you do anything in physics or chemistry, right?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the PhD student's Kuramoto model mean field theory was like, I've got an idea about what goes on, but we need to do all of the really complicated maths that we know 100% describes this behavior to see if what we've got is reasonable. And in, in fact, it was, so.
0: That is, that is amazing. That's
1: <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so,
0: um, the, this uh, experience in like sort of doing the code help you with um, then going on to build the like whole quantum field theory that you that you
1: mentioned before. uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> I mean, quantum <laughs> the field theory project that that was a good one. Um, so I sh- I should probably say a little bit about what I was trying to do before I talk about yeah because <laughs> the, the the actual coding process was was fun. It was challenging. It was. It, it, it may want to pull my hair out. Um, <laughs> I
0: broke you, <laughs>
1: but but that's really where the lessons come from. Okay. So I, w- I was doing a gauge theory in the computer, uh, and the idea is that in field theory, electromagnetism, QED, QCD, like we've we've briefly discussed, you can have a variety of fields and you know, scalar fields, complex fields, and so on uh, that describe your particles. Mm-hmm. So there's a classic one, phi-4 theory that that used to to learn how quantum field theory goes. Uh, you, have, uh, you have fields for your quarks, you have fields for your electrons and so on. And a gauge transformation is a transformation in, in the theory that leaves the Lagrangian invariant, yeah. uh, which kind of means that there are some loose ends uh, in, in, in your theory. There's, there's a symmetry here and symmetries uh, get broken, they give you new particles. So in electromagnetism, for instance, you have the vector potential and the scalar potential for the magnetism and the electric field. Um, So you can define a new scalar field as long as it's twice differentiable uh, and say that I'm going to take my magnetic field and I'm going to add the gradient, sorry, not the magnetic field, the magnetic vector potential. And to that, I'm going to add the gradient of this field because you you get the magnetic field by taking the curl of the vector potential and the curl of a gradient is zero. Um, Likewise, you can do the same for the scalar potential. You can can say now I'm going to take my voltage and I'm going to take away the time derivative of uh, of this twice differentiable function that I've set up. And it turns out this transformation leaves your uh, at least Maxwell's equations invariant, or yeah, your your electric field and your, your magnetic field are invariant under this transformation. So the, this this field that we've introduced is called a gauge field, and when you do scalar QED or vector QED, you need to um, account for that. And there are a bunch of choices you can make, and. I don't know enough about quantum field theory to just dis- discuss in detail the, the pros and cons of each of these things. But the idea is, uh, you you have a gauge theory that's symmetric that gives a certain symmetry to your system. And what's the simplest gauge theory is, um, is this thing called U one. U one is that a, is that re- a group? Yeah, it's a Lie group. Um, but the the key, yeah. see <laughs> Yeah.
0: Is there more to it? (laughs) So,
1: If you want to simulate a gauge field, you you need to have a lattice and on each lattice site, you need to put something. Uh Uh, And if you've got a really complicated uh, Lie group like SO3 or something, uh, you have three dimensional rotations. And that means that you need to put a three by three matrix at each site on your lattice. And that's a lot of maths and that's far too much for a little baby project. So we did a U1 gauge field theory uh, which can be represented by uh, a single complex number uh, with uh, with unit magnitude. So that means that you only need to, needed to assign a phase to each site of your lattice, which made life a lot easier. Like, yeah. and, and the fact that you only needed to store the phase meant that you didn't even need to encode a complex number. You just needed to encode wow. the phase, right? Because <laughs> you get the complex number yeah. out by your cosine plus i mm-hmm. sine phi, yeah. So the, the, it was a U1 field theory because that was the easiest thing to code. Uh, and, and from that, you can, you can generate various operators to, to see um, how the phase is changing when you go around a little loop in your, your field. You can do all kinds of things. Then you can uh, take the n goes to infinity limit of, of various correlators. And these are supposed to decay exponentially and uh, the exponent has the lattice spacing, it has the number of, uh, number of lattice sites, and it has the mass of your particle. And the interesting thing was the mass of the particle. We'll, we'll get there. Um, okay. But the, the point I, was I... we needed to fi- we needed well, to figure the... out the masses of the particles. Yeah. Uh, but to get there, you had to actually code the, the field theory. <laughs> and we needed like order 10 to the four Su- lattice sites oh uh, in God. two plus one dimension. So space is two dimensional, time is one dimensional mm-hmm. uh, um, for, for this thing. You need, to, you need to encode that. I knew Python, right? Mm. Yeah. So I I, I, I coded my, my Metropolis algorithm, uh, particular statistical mechanical way of generating equilibrium configurations in Python. And I ran it on a, a four by four by four four uh lattice so you've got 64 lattice sites it's kind of uh, you know uh, finite size effects right <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just just to see how how it went yeah. and it took like all day to do this in python <laughs> i thought okay my, my professor wants yeah. me to do like 36 <laughs> by 36 by, by 24 or something this is going to take me weeks to co- uh, to run in python uh so you had to learn c plus <laughs> plus. i did I didn't have to learn C plus because I had already taken a class the year before on oh, okay. C I had yeah. just got extremely rusty. So I thought I'd better break out my C plus <laughs> plus. Uh, so I did. and uh, and what took uh, what would have taken three weeks to run in Python took twenty four hours in c plus So That's that was okay. very good. Amazing. got <laughs> plenty of data, got to do all of my correlators, got to find out the the mass of the particles. I got particle masses. And uh, do you know what U1 gauge field theory does for you, Zan?
0: Uh, no.
1: <laughs> OK, OK. So uh, quantum electrodynamics has U1 symmetry. So yeah. it has <clears> the <throat> gauge field. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what the gauge particles are in, in quantum electrodynamics? Um, I think. What particles do you have in EM? You have electrons. Like, you, you you're talking have about like
0: bosons, right? Of QCD. yeah. What are the bosons oh, yeah. in
1: QED? Uh,
0: so you have uh, the photon, and then you have for the strong and weak. You have uh, is it the Z boson or something like that? Oh yeah. Uh, well, uh, but that
1: that gets into QCD. We're ju- we're just talking hmm. U on symmetry QED here. Is it just a photon? It's just a photon. So what's the mass of a photon? <laughs> zero. <laughs> and, and what mass did I get out? Not zero. Not zero. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, well, so, so uh, I got my particle masses wrong. Uh, at least, uh, at least the masses of my bosons did decrease on as the lattice got bigger. Okay. <laughs> so that's not the worst thing. That's not the worst.
0: Do you? Do do Oh, wait. Hang on. I think you may have mentioned this. You still haven't gone back and fixed the problem yet, right?
1: No. (laughs) I'm not sure what I did. I I don't know if my code is broken or whether my statistics is broken, but I I got particle masses that were not zero uh, and I I was supposed to get photons. (laughs)
0: Well, you broke physics, yeah. James. Yeah. <laughs> well physics broke you. Uh, one of one of those. <laughs> so yeah answer.
1: yeah, um, yeah that, um, that was a cool little project actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah and cool. then and then and then the professor of course explains to you how he did it and he got photons perfectly and he also coded it in Fortran, right <laughs> <laughs> as emeritus as professors do.
0: Uh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. or no I, I think i'll stay away from that uh, unless i yeah. well uh, never say never but uh, um we'll see I, I i find it i find it quite cool that um you use the metropolis algorithm because that's what i use for ferromagnetism and uh how oh, what's it called i i i read a over the summer i read leonard susskind's book on uh special relativity and classical field
1: theory. So I'm just about it's at the theoretical minimum series. Yeah the
0: the third one. So I'm just about following uh what you what you're talking about with the gauge invariance and everything. Did you have you yeah. read that book? No I haven't. Uh, okay yeah it's it's pretty good because it it's basically just a transcript of his lectures and they add, they oh, add okay. jokes into it as well, like more jokes than, than they already have. So it's quite entertaining just going through that. That's what okay. I did on the bus, um, just yeah. going back and forth and, uh, over the summer. But yeah, did you, did you have to... Um, I mean, I don't know too much about quantum field theory, but um, when, I, when I did a summer camp at uh, the Perimeter Institute, uh, I, oh, I started cool. yeah it was over the, it was it was in have you heard you, you know about perimeter right surely yeah. yeah so uh, it was called ISSYP I did it in year, the, the summer of year 12 but the thing was okay. this was before I'd learned like linear algebra and multivariable calculus I knew like vectors oh, and okay. matrices so uh, yeah. the my mentor the mentor was like okay so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna find a renormalization group for like, uh, for the Ising model, and then this is, so once you do that, you'll you kind of understand how, I, how I'm trying to apply it to the universe, right? So I'm like, okay, renormalization yeah. groups. Um, do, do, do you use that? I mean, did you use that when you were studying quantum field theory?
1: Oh yeah, when I took quantum field theory, um, well, there are a number of different ways of teaching quantum field theory and uh, I was comparing notes with one of my friends who's at Yale just has actually finished his PhD now but he was taking quantum field theory there at the same time I was taking quantum field theory here Um, and the way that went was that my friend was taken through all of the theories that we have so phi 4 theory uh, QED in in its various flavors QCD and the first term was like writing down Feynman diagrams and functional integrals <clears throat> yeah. and finding out the um, the mass dimensions of all of your operators and so on. And you're just leaving it at that. Whereas when I did quantum field theory here, we spent the first time exclusively on phi-4 theory, um, which is a, a scalar theory, which makes life a little bit easier when you're doing quantum field theory for the first time. Um, but we we got to renormalization. And you know, this this is kind of the crux of why mass dimensions of your operators are important, right? Because if, if you rescale your lengths and you integrate out some momenta, some some coupling coefficients get bigger and some of them get smaller, and you know, those are relevant and irrelevant operators, respectively. So at least I had a picture of what was going on, whereas my friend who was at Yale was like, <laughs> my mass dimension here is, is four. Is that is that good, bad? I, I don't know. Um yeah yeah uh and then um in statistical physics you do a little bit of renormalization group or at least people do i haven't done any of it for for my my cells but you know, there there are some interesting papers out there and you now i read one just the other week there's there's a guy called Raman who used to be here but he now runs the max planck institute for wow. complex systems um and he does all kinds of crazy stuff with you know, let's 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 do some Feynman diagrams for sand falling on a flat surface. Right. Are you serious? It's crazy. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm, I'm serious. Hey, you, know, you, you, you need to do some kind of functional integral for something and that means that you can write down a Feynman diagram formalism to, to represent what's going on at least to a, a couple of orders and that helps you actually compute what's happening um it, it seems crazy it works and you you can do renormalization groups to work out what matters and uh and that was the topic of a paper that i read recently by this guy ramin and one of his students who has just finished his DPhil here um he's going to mit to work with cardar for a postdoc which is very exciting yeah um that the idea behind that was you can write down, it was about chemotaxis which is how cells um, find and, and migrate along a chemical gradient, Yeah. Uh,
0: uh,
1: so it's, it's kind of biological in nature, um, but the point of the article was you can write down a bunch of uh, interactions, and it turns out that one of them is emergent, so you, do, okay. you, you tend not to write this down on a physical level but when you do the renormalization group it just comes out of the woodwork so you have to account for it
0: so what do you know which emergent phenomena is or does it matter oh it's, uh, it
1: is no i i don't know the specifics off the top of my, my head because I, I read it uh, two weeks yeah. ago or something but that um it, it was cool that there's this interaction that you wouldn't write down just by thinking about cells and what they do, but it turns out that it's important uh, on Phys- long, long length scales. Yeah, yeah.
0: because um, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, uh, renormalization looks at um, changing the length scales and seeing what physics is still like yep. invariant, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that kind of blew my mind when i,
1: when I first and it's a lot uh, harder in the continuum <laughs> uh, so looking back at your your year 12 self doing a renormalization on an uh, on an ising model isn't actually so bad uh, <laughs> it was just it was just, uh, a, but, it was just a crazy
0: like way to look at it so, okay, yeah sorry, sorry. um yeah how, how
1: did you but that's sorry you were saying sorry but uh it it it's important when you when you're looking at critical phenomena because you know fractals are exciting just to look at, right? Yeah. And they're self-similar on various length scales. And it, it, if if you've got a certain system and you tune the parameters just right, you get length and in, um, scale invariance. So you you can zoom in and out at will, and your system's going to look identical. Yeah. Which is sort of what you're looking for when you're trying to get phase transitions and other critical behavior. Yeah.
0: Um. So. How how did you, because when you were, when you're doing your masters, it seemed like a lot of the stuff you're doing was uh, extremely theoretical, right? Well, I guess you're, and like much more on um, studying mathematical methods and uh, looking at like space and stuff like that. How did you, how did you then transition into biological, well, theoretical physics on biological systems?
1: Well, I'd always had a sort of latent interest in biology and see my computational neuroscience work as, a, yeah. as an undergrad. And then this opportunity just presented itself to me. I and, uh, anyway, I've already said that uh, there's so much interesting stuff in physics that yeah. it's kind of hard to decide what your favorite is. <clears throat>
0: mm-hmm.
1: So I thought, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: I'll do it. And yeah.
0: I, I, I also I get options for analysis quite a lot with stuff in materials because yeah. you range from things in like engineering on like um, solid mechanics all the way into uh, quantum computing <laughs> right. So it's, yeah. it's it's quite hard to it's, it's quite hard to decide right but I guess just it can be a leap of faith and then like trusting that the, the fun will be in like learning about something. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's um, I, I, uh, reading papers and broadening your mind is great um, and you know, I, doing my code to tr- <laughs> trying ultimately to get to get interesting behaviors out of cells is is rewarding on uh, a kind of results oriented thing. But it's also rewarding in a kind of process coding, trying to fix all the myriad problems. I, I get memory leaks, shooting. pointer <laughs> issues, yeah. Yeah. yeah at the algorithm not being quite right to do what I want. Yeah. Uh,
0: because of your background in statistical mechanics, uh, I wanted to hear you about your thoughts on this quote. I think, I think I'm, I, don't, I don't think I have it exactly, but uh, I remember oh. some physicists saying like when the dust like settles and the curtains are like up, the only thing that will remain is statistical mechanics. <laughs> what do you think of that? Do you know what it's I mean, referencing? Or
1: is there some additional context?
0: I, I think I think what they meant was that um because of the way physics is formulated with uh some stuff in uh relativity and, and quantum mechanics because it's not like the final versions right there'll be um there will be things that'll be changing and um yeah. Um, more not really axioms but things we kind of think the model as the way it is will be uh, disputed and mm-hmm. proven wrong. So statistical mechanics is the only thing that's like pretty solid.
1: Yeah, statistical mechanics is extremely solid um, which isn't to say that it's sort of solved there are a lot <laughs> There's, there's still lots to be done in the field, particularly in non-equilibrium systems. Um but yeah, it's it's really powerful. You can just you you can explain behaviors of like magnets and stuff from almost no first principles. It's wild. I think uh, yeah. it, it, you can just. You can get so much out of it. It's so it's so rich. Um, it, it's it's fun to put on a computer as well and, and see how your spins flip up and down. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, one of those
0: things that you can only like you can't do with your little measly brain, human brain. You have to put on a computer to to yeah. sort of churn through. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Um, yeah. So that's really cool stuff. Um, the, the one other cool thing that i i um i found on your website was the was the yeah. lego stuff like yeah. so 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 completely different from the physics uh what, what was your inspiration for those lego models um was it because uh, well, you were just like pissed off with the <laughs> degree and everything and just wanted to just be creative
1: well I, i've always in, enjoyed my lego i guess ultimately it's it's a nostalgia thing so uh, when i was a kid in the late 90s uh, which kind of dates me a bit uh, <laughs> 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 uh, I had a, a nice little collection of legacy, it's it so great to, to iterate and build new things out out of the castle as I had. I spent a lot of time playing uh, playing with my castle and, and making new things for it, new towers and so on. Um, I like buildings, uh, so y- y- you can make Scale models of, of from various things you can make it uh, make scale models from bellswood card styrene and so on And I, I've done a bit of that and that, that's nice um, you, you've got a lot of room to play with there but but Lego's nice in that you're constrained uh, there is a system you um, know it's uh' I've forgotten the exact millimeter dimensions, but you know, you, you, your standard little Lego brick has a certain height and it's a certain width, and the height to, to width ratio is six to five. So you've got to you've got to think carefully because it, it, it's it's not cubic. Yeah. So you you've got to be a bit more creative in in how you organize everything, um, and and you might think, ah, oh, that that makes life really hard, but but the constraints that you have. You know, if you were unconstrained, if you just had a pile of card and styrene to build something, you might think, oh, I don't know where I'm gonna get started. But because because there are certain pieces that exist, because the geometry is already constrained in a certain way, you get to be creative and you can think, oh, this piece would work for a certain spire on something and so on and the fact that the system isn't to say that you can't do some really wild stuff so you can even you can even make right triangles that don't have integer hypotenuses if you if you do the right thing um which is pretty exciting um and uh round and polygonal shapes can be quite hard but it's really rewarding once you figure out a way to do that that's sort of structurally sound Uh, so when I, when I decide I want to make something, um, which is frequently a building, uh, I'll, I'll get some source material like Google Maps or some architect sketches and so on, and try and decide what, what I want the scale to be. And the scale uh, is a little bit fuzzy because you know, Lego isn't, isn't perfectly to scale thing because you, you do have the geometric constraints. Um, you kind of work something out so work work out uh, a scale ish that is reasonable that lets you resolve a lot of a lot of stuff that goes on. So this is what I did when I made my model of Pembroke College, because I'm, I'm at Pembroke College and I, I quite like it. it, it's near and dear to my heart. So oh. um, so I, I thought, how am I gonna make the chapel? How am I gonna make the old quad? What's a reasonable scale? So I, I ended up picking like one of these um, headlight bricks to represent a window and that, that kind of sets it from there. Um, now it was a lot harder when I when I wanted to design a, a model of the Radcliffe Camera, which is a, another classic building in Oxford, because I I, I wanted that to be to the same scale as Pembroke College. Poly- yeah. so <laughs> you put it on map that map so you can see it. Yeah, uh, so I I couldn't c- be quite so flexible, but you know, that that one was really hard because the Radcliffe Camera is a round building, round build uh, round things are difficult in general to make with Lego. Um, by, I made a, a 12-sided polygon, something like that, 16-sided polygon, See, Okay. Uh, and that, that was very fiddly to design, but one, once you've got that, um, once you've done it, you, you, have, a, you have a representation of, uh, of something that you like or something that you find interesting, and you've kind of solved a problem, and I like that. It's actually so cool.
0: I when I was yeah. young, I I played a lot with I played Transformers a lot. Yeah. So having them transformed from robot to to vehicle and then back, it was just I don't know. It's just a work of engineering and something of marvel. At. It
1: is. It's really cool. And and there are people who build transformers from Lego. And <laughs> I, I can't imagine doing that, but it, they've they have got to make sure that all of the pieces stick together and you get the you get the transformation from you know, your your truck to, to Optimus Prime and yeah. you have got to f- fit all of that in it's like mind-boggling yeah, but, I, I'm uh,
0: sure they, i'm sure they yeah they, they must probably do so much like blender or cad work before they then go and just just to just to make sure that everything fits together and it has got enough clearance and everything
1: well, you can uh, you can't just, well, this is one of the advantages of Lego, you can iterate and prototype things very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, pe- people will just fiddle around with bricks in their hands as well until they they find something that works.
0: Have, have you built anything in, with real Legos kind of, like, in recent years?
1: Oh, it's been a bit of a while. Um one one of my favorite things is that uh, I I built a little model of the cat bus from um... Harry Potter. <laughs> Wait no no, <laughs> no Harry Potter no
0: Totoro right Totoro, Totoro yeah 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 wow that's... <laughs> uh,
1: that 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 was fun yeah yeah um, I, yeah, I love a, that movie. a very small thing no, nothing 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 very large but yeah that that was a that was a fun thing I I I think I got a nice little representation of of what the cat bus looks like. Uh,
0: do, you, do you still have it with you, and also?
1: no, it, it's back in America. All my Legos in America. Um, I see. Yeah. I, I guess one could say that it's a bit, bit of a cheat to do, uh, to do it digitally. Um, but you know, you you still have the, you still have the system that you have to work in, and to an extent, it can be harder to do it digitally because the the pieces have to s- stick together in the computer, and there can't be any. Um, steric hindrance between pieces, whereas in real life, you can just kind of fudge things a little bit <laughs> until it fits.
0: Um, I can't, believe you. I can't believe you've you're... got a little gap,
1: so you can wedge some other thing in there and make it like an angled panel or something. So, there, there are advantages and disadvantages.
0: Mm-hmm. I can't believe you use um, steric, steric hindrance to <laughs> describe Legos with
1: that. It's true, though. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's true. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I just have uh, one one last question, James. Um, well, it, it's it's more so because uh, I remember uh, seeing you doing a lot of reading at the Quint back in Warwick. So, yeah. uh, what, what was what was the most significant book that like made you change the way you think? Okay,
1: so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've had to think about this. And I, I said at the very beginning that physical intuition is a very important thing. Yeah. And I've said that um, that theory and maths uh, in physics are on slightly different... Well, they're not on different levels, but they're different things. And they're, they're valuable in their own, own regards. Um, I've read a lot of books over the years. But I think that the most, most important one I've read recently is uh, The Lightness of Being by Frank Wilczek. Who is one of, creative, yeah. one of the one of the creators of uh, quantum chromodynamics? Um, he he takes you um, through the standard model, and he 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 has a good good style of writing, but he um, he doesn't shy away from some of the details. I mean, he doesn't get into such detail that um, that a layperson can't understand what's going on. So he doesn't write down a lot of very hard maths, but it, he goes into enough detail about the actual physics that I can kind of make connections with what I do know from the maths that I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I got to understand and develop a bit more physical intuition, I think, for how, for how physics goes, at least on the standard model level. Um, and this book came up uh, the other week when I had dinner with my MCR committee. So in the committee is currently reading it really enjoying the process uh, uh, i i chimed in and said that you know, i i really enjoyed this book as well and one could say that this is the most influential book i've read for a while because it kind of gave me a new appreciation for for physics and inspired me ultimately to to apply for my dphil uh, i see okay yeah. uh, that's uh, that's amazing um it's a really good book uh, if you haven't read it i'd recommend it okay
0: uh, thank you so much, James. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to say or uh, anywhere people can reach out to you if, if that's okay? uh,
1: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Zen. It's been lovely to talk to you for the last almost 90 minutes now. Um, yeah. if, if you want to contact me, if you want to uh, dig through my stuff on the internet like Zen has done, <laughs> my website is uh, at jngraham.com. That's j-n-g-r-a-h-a-m.com um yeah I, I don't really have a a good presence elsewhere I mean I'm on Facebook and stuff but you know. yeah thank yeah. you so much Jesse. my, my <laughs> portfolio of stuff is on my personal website yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah I, saw, I saw a lot if, of if you'd like to see it. Pembroke <laughs> College
1: cool. and and the Radcliffe camera and my little styrene house and and read my thoughts about the books that I've read that that's your place to go
0: All right, thank you so much, James. It's been great. Thanks so again,
1: Sam.